Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19, starting in verse 1, because where else would we start? When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elisha who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates we played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang the dirge and you did not mourn for john came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon the son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him a glutton and, ta and drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners yet wisdom is justified by her deeds Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning to understand your word so that we can be worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. For those who have felt the heaviness of sin, the heaviness of this world, the heaviness of temptation, would you bring encouragement? For those who are living as disobedient children, would you bring conviction? And would your repentance be shown? Would your kindness be shown which leads them to repentance? And if there are those whose hearts are hard and who are blind to see the beauty of the Gospel, would you reveal it to them today? We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) 
I believe there's a few stigmas that Christians approach Christianity. One of them being this conversation of doubt. Are Christians allowed to doubt? If you do doubt, is there some type of deficiency in your faith? Am I a weak Christian? Am I a failing Christian? Are pastors allowed to doubt? Here's what one pastor, Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century, has to say about this. Some of us who have preached the Word for years have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge and fundamental doctrine of the Bible. What, what he's saying here, just a little context, some pastors, some preachers who have been able to see the faith come alive in people's hearts, discipleship being taken place, these men who have worked great things have nevertheless, he goes on to say, been to the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. So I ask again, is there some type of deficiency that's going on with the Christian who doubts? Are they weak? Are they failing? Our passage here this morning deals with who Jesus calls the greatest man ever born by a woman, and we see that this great man had a fight with doubt. We see as Jesus is finishing instructing his disciples and he's going out to teach in their regions, John being locked up by Herod, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Baptist is locked up by Herod in a dungeon, thinking to himself, why am I still here? If Jesus is the Christ, why am I still here? And so John sends two of his disciples asking a very legitimate question. Are you the Christ or shall we look for another? And Jesus' response is simple. He tells John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you hear and see. It's interesting that Jesus himself didn't go and visit John, but instead he sends his disciples to go and tell John what they hear and see. That the lame walk, that lepers are cleansed, that the dead are raised to life, that the poor have the kingdom of God preached to them. And just in case if anybody who had heard John's disciples say that and get this picture that John is a weary, fickle man, Jesus goes on to affirm John's ministry. And in Jesus affirming John's ministry, one thing that is being made clear is that Jesus is affirming his own ministry. 
He's affirming John's ministry by affirming that he was the prophet that the people thought him to be. He was the prophet to come and proclaim about the king. This is what makes John so great. But Jesus lets us in on a little secret that those who are actually lesser than John or who come after John will be greater than John. The sad reality of this generation that that Jesus is speaking to is that they totally miss John as the prophet, the one to prepare the way. And because they miss John as the prophet, the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, they miss Jesus. You see, John and Jesus' ministry almost go hand in hand. If you know who John is, then you know who Jesus is. And if you know who Jesus is, then you know who John is. So if I can encourage us this morning... The aim of this passage is to you who may be doubting. If you are doubting, trust and submit to Jesus' words. Let me say that again. If you are here this morning doubting, trust and submit to Jesus' words. And we're going to see this in three ways. I'm on a three-point sermon kick lately. And if you've noticed that, then I apologize. Next week, it'll be a two and a half. The first point that we'll look at is verses 1 through 6, doubting dungeon. There's a second point that we'll look at, verses 7 through 15, affirming John. And our third point, verses 16 through 19, a dissatisfied, naysaying generation. So let's come to our first point, verses 1 through 6. We see there's this transition sentence that's going on at first. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, we we just finished in chapter 10, the second instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples in the book of Matthew. He's instructing his disciples on how to be a missional group of people, how to go to their hometowns, the regions, and to proclaim the good news and do deeds of mercy. But Jesus isn't one to just sit back and say, okay, it's your turn. Now, I think I'm just going to catch up on some Z's while you go and do this work. No, our passage continues on. Jesus went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. This is the common thread of Jesus' ministry as he goes and he does works and he teaches and preaches about the kingdom of heaven. This is what his ministry consists of. Pulling back the curtain of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And while Jesus is going out, this is where we are reintroduced to John. John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus. John currently is locked up. John's in prison. He can't get out. He's locked up by Herod. Herod. 
John and Herod have a very just strange relationship. Herod doesn't like John because, Herod, because John has called him out for stealing his brother's wife. But Herod is too afraid to put John to death because the people view him as a prophet. And so John has found himself in prison. And we don't necessarily know how long John has been in prison for up to this point, but we know that he's in prison. We know that he has already told us who he thinks Jesus is. This is the one, John says, whom I am unworthy to even untie the straps of his sandal. This is he. In other places, when John the Baptist's followers are getting a little uh, worried that Jesus is becoming more popular than him, John says, no, I must decrease and he must increase. That's the whole point of my ministry. It's to point to him. This is the Messiah. This is the King. This is the one who has come to inaugurate the kingdom and bring those who are captive out of captivity. And John now finds himself in prison. And so he sends two of his disciples because John has a question for Jesus. John is wondering, why am I still stuck here if this is the Messiah? And so he asks him, are you the one to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? John is confused. It's not that John doesn't think that there will be a Christ. It's that John is looking at Jesus and thinking through, is he the right one? Did I get this right? Or did I point at some phony? And Jesus' response to John is to John's disciples is go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus isn't just telling John's disciples, go and tell him about the good works, although he is. He is reminding John of the prophetic fulfillment that is taking place right now that Isaiah had prophesied about. In this very true reality, in the midst of John's doubting and wondering, is this the Christ? Did we get it right? Did I get it right? Did I point to, to some wrong person? Jesus is saying, look at what's happening. The fulfillment of what was supposed to take place is happening before these people's very eyes. The poor have good news preached to them. And the servant king is here to heal those who have different deformities and wounds and ailments. 
This is the reality of the kingdom taking place, John. Trust in what you heard. Trust in what you see. Jesus finishes in verse 9 or, or, or says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is a, a beatitude right here. Which would have reminded John once again that the one who is to come would be a stumbling block for people. The one who is to come would be a hard one to understand because of the nature of who he is. The king would be hard to come to grips with. He would be a stumbling block where people would be offended by him. And we're seeing this play out before our eyes as the Pharisees and the Sadducees do want, don't want anything to do with Jesus. They're looking at him as this stumbling block, being offended by what he is doing and what he is saying. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in the midst of doubting in who Jesus is, there is shame that's put on our backs. This shame then leads us not to bring these doubts to light in front of other brothers and sisters, but instead to internalize them which very quickly leads to the question that I asked earlier, am I somehow failing as a Christian if I'm doubting Jesus? And the answer is no. Because the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is when you have every little thing figured out to the point where you don't need to believe it all. Instead, doubt is a very natural reaction of wanting to fully or better understand what you may not fully understand. And this is what we see taking place with John. There is this very true reality that the people of God, Israel, thought that this Messiah was going to be a King David-like figure who would come and destroy all of the enemies and establish this political kingdom on earth to bring peace to the Jewish people. And John very may well have had a poor or not full understanding of what Jesus was fully coming to do. Jesus was coming to establish peace, but not through a momentary physical kingdom, but through an eternal spiritual kingdom. You know, one thing that I'm starting to realize is doubt for the Christian often arises when we can't see the full picture. God, why would you do that to me? Why would this person be sick with this? Why would you allow this tragedy to take place?
Why would this person leave me? Why didn't I get into this school? Doubt often arises for the Christian when we don't see the full picture. And yet we can trust that we don't need to see the full picture, but instead, God as Creator knows all things perfectly and is not surprised. Nothing happens late or too early in God's economy. It happens exactly when it's supposed to. You see, in the midst of John not fully understanding what's taking place and why Jesus hasn't come with the twelve to bust him out of prison. Jesus is simply telling John, do you remember what the word says? Do you remember what was prophesied? Do you remember what Isaiah was saying? Take back to John what you hear and see. But how exactly do we trust and submit? Well, this is where then we move to our second point, verses 7 through 15. We see Jesus affirming John's ministry. Let's let's move on. Verse 7, as they went away, this is John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, just in case that the, the crowd hears John's disciples and start to think that this is a man who is weak, in his faith that's not convicted or or has convictions. He wants to speak to the crowd. He wants to affirm John. This is exactly why Jesus says. He asks three questions here to the crowd. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? In in a more simple way to, to say this, what Jesus is asking The crowd is, did you expect when you went out to go and hear John, to hear a fickle man who has no convictions speak? Did you go out to hear a man with no convictions who's tossed to and fro by the wind? Is that what you expected when you went out to go and listen to John? This man who's swayed back and forth by public opinion, by the fear of the Pharisees or the religious elite, by the fear of Herod, did you really expect him to be like a reed shaken? This man have no conviction whatsoever? Jesus asks then another question. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kingdoms. Simply put, did you expect to go out and see a a hypocrite? No, you went out to see a man dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. You didn't expect to go out and see some pompous religious leader being shaken back and forth by the wind. No, you went out to see a man who was convicted. He had convictions. He was not living in a hypocritical lifestyle. 
So he asks Jesus, uh, Jesus asks a third question. What then did you go out to see a prophet? Did you, the crowd, go out to see a prophet? And Jesus answers the question for them. Yes, yes, this is who you went out to see. You went out to see a prophet. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is quoting Malachi here. That not just was John a prophet, not just did the people recognize as John as this prophet, but John was a prophet who was prophesied about to be a prophet. You, you hear what I'm saying? It was prophesied about John that he would be a prophet. This is like double prophet honor here. This is who was out in the wilderness proclaiming to repent and be baptized because the kingdom is at hand. This is John who wasn't shaken like a reed back and forth and wasn't out in soft clothing going home to a, a kingdom and kicking up his feet in his recliner. Instead, this was the prophet, prophesied prophet who would be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah, for the true King. This is why Jesus goes on to tell the crowd, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Because John would be the one who would prepare the way for the King. John would be pointing to Jesus. John would be saying, this is the one. Turn to Him. He's the one. Jesus is the one to follow. Not me. I need to decrease so He can increase. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one I've been preparing things for, or preparing the path, making way for Him. Follow Him. Trust Him. Not me. Jesus is affirming John's ministry right here. Once again, Jesus is pointing back to the Word. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. He's, he's affirming John's ministry through telling those who could possibly be doubting, trust in the Word. But something strange then happens because Jesus takes this almost weird transition. Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does Jesus mean by this? It's strange that Jesus would affirm John so much and then almost belittle him in such a quick way. If the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, let's continue on. We'll come back to that. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. And then he says, maybe one of my favorite sayings, 
he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And no, there wasn't some type of epidemic during Jesus' time where there were people born without ears. Jesus is saying, if you're spiritually understanding what I'm saying, those who have ears, let them hear. If you, if you, maybe this is a more modern expression. Can you smell what I'm stepping in? That's what Jesus is saying here. The kingdom of God has always experienced violence, and we're seeing this even in John the Baptist's life. As the spiritual reality that's taking place is those who are enemies of the kingdom do not like the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is telling his listeners the prophets have experienced persecution because they too had brought the, the good news of the kingdom of God. They called people, their people, to repentance. And yet this message was still not accepted by all. And so the kingdom has suffered violence. So what does that mean for us then? That means as we continue to go out and proclaim the kingdom of heaven, it won't be a cakewalk. Just like John, who's the greatest man that's been born of a woman, and yet Jesus says that those who come after John, those who are least in the kingdom, will be greater. How is that possible? You see, John proclaimed as Jesus, as the King, the Messiah, the one who was promised to come. But those who come after John get to proclaim something even greater. Those who come after John get to proclaim the reality of what the King has come to do and fulfill. That Jesus, the King, has come as a suffering servant to bear the sins of this world. He bore the sins. He took on God's wrath on the cross. He died and three days later rose again. He ascended and is sitting at the Father's right hand. So John may have been one who proclaimed the good news that the Messiah was currently here, but you and I get the privilege of proclaiming that Christ was crucified and is now glorified. We get what some theologians call this eschatology or eschatological understanding of what Jesus has come to do. We get the privilege of preaching the full gospel without any hindrance that Jesus dies for sinners and sinners can come to Jesus freely and repent of their sins and trust in Him. 
Oh, look, if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, now's the time. The reality is, is that our sin weighs on us. It crushes us. It causes us to ask questions. What pleasure can I get from this world? And so what we do with our life is we go from one momentary pleasure to the next momentary pleasure, hoping that satisfaction from that momentary pleasure can bring us forever satisfaction. And yet, what it does is it brings false satisfaction. It brings false hope. It brings false deliverance. And yet, Jesus brings the true deliverance, the real deliverance, the full deliverance that our hearts long for. Deliverance from sin and the wrath of God. And that moment you put your trust in Jesus, you are seen as a precious daughter and a treasured son. You are no longer defined by, defined by your sin, but you are defined by what Jesus has done for you. And that's live a righteous, blameless life. This is the good news that is extended to all. This is the good news that allows us, when Jesus says, yet those who come after John will be greater. We get the privilege of preaching Christ crucified and Christ glorified. So how does this, how does Jesus affirming John, <clears throat> what does this have to do with us who doubt? Simply, Jesus, what Jesus is doing here as he's affirming John, he's pointing back to show how John was prophesied about. He's pointing back and showing how John faithfully submitted to the calling of prophets. So as it might be perceived that John is doubting, what Jesus is doing is affirming John by calling the people, the crowds, to trust what was prophesied about, and to see how John faithfully, even to the point of being imprisoned, and we get, we get to see what comes next in a little while. Uh, this is a spoiler alert. This book has been written for about 2,000 years now. John gets beheaded. So John is obedient to trusting what Jesus has to say to the point of death. And so like the old song goes, trust and obey. If you have found yourself in a season of doubt where you're looking at God's Word and you're saying, I just, I don't know where this is coming from. Can I just plead with you for a moment? Continue to trust and obey. Continue to read the Word and obey it. You will not go wrong with that. Because there are going to be dissatisfied naysayers throughout your life who are going to poke and prod and shoot fiery arrows of doubt at you. We move on to 
point three, verses 16 through 19, we see that this is the case as Jesus now turns his attention to an unsatisfied generation. He asks, what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang the dirge and you did not mourn. Or, or we could sing, say, we sang the lament and you did not mourn. He's using this parable to define this generation. He's using this parable. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We celebrated and you refused to celebrate. We lamented and you refused to lament. And he brings a fuller understanding of what this means for this generation. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. When John came, he, he came a convicted man. He was strong in his convictions. He was proclaiming a gospel of repentance. Some people might even go as far as to say as when John was preaching, he was preaching fire and brimstone. Repent, the kingdom of hand is the kingdom is at hand. Be baptized right now. Don't delay. Become a citizen. People looked at John and saw that this man was a convicted man who did not eat. He rarely ate. He, he ate. He had to have eaten. But he hardly ate. He hardly drank. He lived out in the desert. And yet the people looked at him and said, He has a demon. Don't trust this man. He's way too conservative. Don't trust this man. And as John was proclaiming the kingdom and repentance, people did not catch on that this was a time to mourn. That John, as he's singing a song of lament and he was calling people to mourn over their sin, they did not pick up on what John was proclaiming. And as for Jesus, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And as Jesus is here, he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. The people are looking at him and saying, how could this possibly be the Messiah? The Messiah wouldn't stoop so low to eat with tax collectors and sinners. Whereas John is singing a song of lament and calling people to mourn, Jesus is playing the flute, calling people to rejoice and celebrate because the King is here. All of those bad things that are true are coming untrue and, and the kingdom is reversing. The kingdom that holds this, this world under shackles is being reversed through Jesus inaugurating His kingdom. And so, I mean, what you could say, some people were calling Jesus is saying, this man is a little bit too liberal for my taste because he's hanging out with these people. We've got John, who's this conservative crazy guy, and we've got Jesus, who's this liberal lunatic. But aren't these different times? Aren't we so much 
smarter. It's been 2,000 years. We've made so much more advancements and we've evolved as species so much. Surely, we still don't believe in this mumbo-jumbo stuff, right? And yet we see sin continue to be passed down from generation to generation and we still see people fighting and arguing and trying to understand who in the world this Jesus guy is. You see, the life of Christianity will be the life of receiving criticism. The life of truly following Jesus will be a life of receiving criticism from people. People will want to shoot darts of doubt at you. You still believe in this? But didn't a bunch of men write this? How could this possibly be trustworthy? We even see that happening in churches. And we see the greatest man that has ever come from a woman according to Jesus, and the greatest man, Jesus himself, was sadly misunderstood. They didn't pick up that John was the one who was prophesied about to prepare the way for the Messiah and that Jesus was the Messiah. And because they missed John, they missed Jesus. And because they don't understand who Jesus is, they don't understand who John is. And oftentimes as Christians, we feel this tension, don't we? We feel this tension of saying we have convictions we have convictions of pursuing godliness and holiness and we want to be pious people who are dedicated to the book, who live holy and blameless lives and take our call to holiness serious like John. And oftentimes, we might be looked at and scrutinized for that. And then we see Jesus, who's the friend of tax collectors, and as we're intermingling with sinners and tax collectors, we get looked at and people are asking the question, why in the world would you hang out with them? Those are the real sinners, you know. And yet God still greatly uses both of their ministries. Look, the, the call to being a Christian is the call to be misunderstood at times. And because of this misunderstanding and because we can't see the full picture of what God is doing, we could be and might very well be tempted to doubt. So as we conclude here today, Alistair McGrath, he is a, an Irish theologian. He says this, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that He stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure 
of the things in which we trust, which, again, I encourage us, if you find yourself doubting, trust and submit to Jesus' words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And we thank you that you have called us as your children to trust and obey you. If there are those who are doubting right now, would you bring them relief? And would you quench those arrows that might be in their souls. Amen.